All right, let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, would you remind us afresh through your holy word this morning that we have no other rock, no other foundation but you. Indeed, Lord, you are our fountain and all our fountains are in you. Have your proper place. Have your ultimacy within us and among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start off this morning with a book recommendation. I was supposed to bring this up with me. Um, and it was actually originally given to me by a member of this congregation. The book is Man's Search for Meaning. And it was written in uh, 1946 uh, by an Austrian-born psych, uh, psychiatrist uh, named Viktor Frankl. I'm sure some of you have read this. It's an amazing book. During World War II, Frankl, uh, who was also Jewish, experienced firsthand the horrors of the Holocaust and living in a concentration camp at Auschwitz. Uh, but he survived and he recorded his experience and reflections in this book. Now, as the title implies, one of the predominant themes of the book is Frankel's own search for meaning amidst the seemingly meaningless brutality of the Nazi regime, a context of systematic murder and rape and slave labor, disease and rampant starvation in the camp. As a trained psychiatrist and an astute student of human nature, Frankel observed that people, those who fared the best in such an inhumane context, were often the ones who were able to find some sense of meaning in the midst of their suffering, usually through some kind of religious faith or devotion. Frankel goes so far as to say that in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment that it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. And of course, he witnessed the difference that meaning makes time and time again in the most pressurized of contexts. Indeed, Frankel eventually founded a new school of psychotherapy known as logotherapy, it comes from the you know, familiar Greek word logos, which is a kind of therapy that seeks to help patients focus their lives on that which gives them meaning. You've probably heard of this or, or seen it portrayed in movies before. So for example, logotherapy might be used to encourage a depressed patient to focus more of their energy on the meaning that they derive from their family or their art or their faith. Of course, not all sources of meaning are created equal, but clearly Frankel had made a crucial and indeed very biblical observation about human nature, namely that man cannot live by bread alone. That operating out of a deeper sense of meaning is a basic ingredient to human flourishing. You can avoid it for a while, guys but eventually it's going to catch up to you. 
by the time you bury your own parents, you're going to start asking yourself the question, what does this all mean? And will I ever see them again? And what am I doing with my life? This morning we began our summer sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's not a stretch to say that Ecclesiastes is in fact about man's search for meaning. But it's not about the finite kind of meaning that we can sort of create in our own minds along the way, like the meaning somebody might derive from acquiring great wealth, or the meaning another might derive from playing like a really involved video game. According to Ecclesiastes, that transitory kind of meaning is simply vanity and a striving after wind. Ecclesiastes is about man's search for transcendent meaning, for meaning beyond ourselves, for meaning that will last unto eternity. That's the kind of meaning that our souls are thirsty for. And you don't have to read much of Ecclesiastes before you realize this is an utterly unique book in the canon of Scripture. Not only does it come across as pessimistic, at least for long segments at a time, but at times it can even seem downright irreligious. For example, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. That's pretty depressing stuff. Ecclesiastes was such a controversial book that history records that it was almost omitted from the canon of Scripture when the Hebrew Bible was being canonized. But I'm glad to say this morning that God's providence did not allow that. Because truth be told, I really love the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember I was a college student? when I first read it, and I remember thinking, wow, I didn't know the Bible was allowed to say stuff like that. I mean, it felt, felt kind of punk rock. The first Bible study that Carissa and I ever led on Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, sorry, excuse me, the, the first Bible study that Carissa and I ever led was on the book of Ecclesiastes. And our dorm room was just like packed full of philosophy students at the University of North Florida and skeptics, and there was never a dull moment. And uh, I promise you that this summer, as we just kind of hit the pause button for a moment on our series on the Gospel of John and turn to Ecclesiastes, if we're willing to lean in and like truly wrestle with this stuff, we'll begin to understand why this book is indeed Holy Scripture. Why even this book is indeed God-breathed. All right, now this is the first sermon of a 12-chapter series, so I should probably say a few words about the genre and the author. You'll find uh, the book of Ecclesiastes situated in your Old Testament after Job, right? after the Psalms, after Proverbs, but before the Song of Songs, in a section of the Bible known as wisdom literature. And when we're reading God's word, we always need to consider the question of genre. In what way is God's truth revealed to us through this specific book of scripture? We need to ask that question. Theologians have said that the Bible is without error in all that it affirms. Without error in all that it affirms. Meaning 
that it has an infallible message when it's read as God intends it to be read. But listen, this does not mean that every statement in the Bible is true. Now, some of you might be getting nervous here. How could this be? For example, Psalm 14, verse 1 includes this sentence, There is no God. Now, clearly this is not true. But the context is pretty important. The full statement is, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. You see, I tricked you. But this is actually an important point. Uh, Think about it. Most of the book of Job, which is a very long book in Holy Scripture, is full of untrue statements made about God by Job's friends and even by Job himself. Uh, Chapter after chapter, very few of the sentences in Job, other than the ones given by God and maybe a few by Job, are actually reliable when read in isolation. But when they're set into the framework of what God desires to reveal through this God-breathed story, then these words take their proper place in God's word. Does that make sense? So, and then even after that, even when we get the genre right, we need to make a further move, which is to interpret Job in light of the wider canon of the Old Testament in God's covenant with Israel. And then ultimately, it needs to be interpreted in light of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who is the fullness of God in human form. In the past, God spoke in many and various ways to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So, for example, when Job says in chapter 9, verses 33 through 34, when he says about God, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me, so that this terror would frighten me no more. We understand that this is something that Job would no longer say on this side of Calvary. Amen? So why is all this important as we approach Ecclesiastes? Not just because we need to remember that it was written long before Jesus came, although of course that's true. And not just because the author doesn't have as much knowledge about heaven or the resurrection as we have, although, of course, that's true too. But because we need to remember that the majority of this book, the author intentionally confines his search for meaning. He narrows the scope to that which takes place, quote, under the sun. In other words, that which he can observe just here on earth. I'll say more about this in a minute, but for now, would you please turn there with me to Ecclesiastes 1? It's on page 553. And you'll notice right away uh, a kind of statement about the authorship of this book. Now, some of you guys are fascinated in the question of who's the real author of what. If you're not that fascinated, this is the part of my sermon where I care the least about whether or not you fall asleep temporarily, but I'll wake you up in a minute, okay? Uh, Some of you guys love this question. So verse 1 begins, the words of the preacher, the son of David king in Jerusalem. And this, of course, uh, brings King Solomon to mind immediately because he was literally both the son of David and the king in Jerusalem. Now, furthermore, if you scan down to verse 16, this appears to be an additional reference to King Solomon, who's known in scripture as wiser than all other men and a compiler of wise proverbs. See 1 Kings chapter 4. 
Finally, Solomon matches the, bio, uh, the biographical sketch that's put forward in the rest of Ecclesiastes for the most part, right? Which portrays the author as this incredibly learned man with surpassing wealth, with the power and means to pursue every pleasure available under the sun. And so the author really seems to be Solomon, right? Case closed. Um, but there are several good reasons to question the traditional view. And indeed, um, many biblically conservative pastors like Tim Keller and John Stott think it unlikely that Solomon actually wrote it. Some of the reasons they give are scholarly and technical, but let's focus on some of the more obvious examples. You can look at those on your own if you'd like. First of all, whereas the opening verse of the book of Proverbs and the opening verse of the Song of Psalms, uh, Song of Songs names Solomon directly, Ecclesiastes only seems to refer to him indirectly. You see that? So could this be a hint that maybe something different is at work? Why didn't he sign his name to it? Second, the same statement in verse 16 that can be used as evidence for King Solomon, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, can also be used, if we think about it, against him. After all, there were only two Jewish kings prior to Solomon, and only one, his father David, ruled in Jerusalem before him. So, does this not seem to render his boast superfluous? In a similar vein, there are other passages, such as Ecclesiastes 3.16 and 5.8, that seem to imply the author's powerlessness over injustices in the land, which would be sort of a surprising perspective for a king to espouse, especially a king as powerful as Solomon. Now, what are we to make of all this? How should we view the authorship of Ecclesiastes in this sermon series going forward? Honestly, while the evidence may be inconclusive, I think our interpretation will, will actually be on firmer footing if we take the traditional view as our working assumption. Because even those who cast doubt on direct Solomonic authorship tend to believe that his historical persona is in view in this book. So for example, you know, like imagine if someone today, and people have written novels like this, but imagine if somebody were, were to write a novel about like the first Catholic president who was this handsome and popular figure and he came to a tragic end being assassinated in front of the watching world. Now, even if we never were given the name of this protagonist, or even if he was given a different name, we would understand as modern Americans that we are to read this novel in light of our understanding of John F. Kennedy, right? Likewise, the book of Ecclesiastes seems to give a clear reference to the life and the persona of Solomon, whether or not he actually wrote it. Now, I lean to the simpler explanation, but I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, okay? So, so moving on to verse 2, we get to the meat of the passage. So if you, if you fell asleep, wake up. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The Hebrew word hebel, which the ESV renders vanity, literally means mist or vapor. But here it also has a sort of figurative meaning. This term is central to the book. It occurs 32 times in 38 times, excuse me, in just 12 chapters. Hebel is used to refer to something or a state of affairs that, that doesn't last 
or something that doesn't satisfy or something that doesn't seem to make sense or something that doesn't seem right. You ever feel like life doesn't make sense? It, like, that it just doesn't like work the way that it should or the way that we were told? Ecclesiastes is here for you. All right? And more importantly, the God of the Bible shows through Ecclesiastes that he understands your plight. In fact, it's helpful to view the book of Ecclesiastes as a, a, a kind of a part of the immune system of the Old Testament. So Job functions in much the same way. So for example, much of the Old Testament might give you the impression that if you obey, then you will be blessed. If you sin, then there will be retribution in this life. You read something like the book of Proverbs, a very positive book, or you read the promises in the book of Deuteronomy, and you might be given that impression. But the way that Job functions, the way that Ecclesiastes functions, is almost to say, yeah, but, but not always. And we got to be careful with this too, beloved. I feel like it's like really common for people who are like especially conservative politically to be like, oh, if they're suffering, they must have done something wrong. Uh, they probably didn't work very hard or something like that, right? You know, we have to be careful because there are important principles indeed. Yeah, it's better to work hard. Yeah, it's better to be honest. But it just doesn't work automatically like that. Life is more complicated than immediately meets the eye. And Ecclesiastes is here to clarify that. And this leads us to another crucial phrase in Ecclesiastes, which I already mentioned, under the sun. So verse 3 continues, and I'm going to read a good bit of chapter 1 here. It says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they return again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And I'm just picturing the gravestones in the cemetery next to my house that say, so-and-so will be remembered forever. And it's like broken off and tumbled and lying on its face. Here the author bemoans the endless circularity of life under the sun and how it seems to be that there's no progress and thus no meaning. As one scholar puts it, activity abounds. Everything is in perpetual motion like a hamster and a wheel, but no destination is reached. Ever in motion, the universe is uniformly indifferent to human living from birth to death. This description, to me, calls to mind the myth of Sisyphus in Greek mythology. Sisyphus was the founding king of modern Corinth. 
and he was condemned by the gods to spend eternity rolling a boulder up the hill only to have it roll down every time he neared the top. And then he would just do it again and do it again and do it again, rinse and repeat for all eternity. It's the very image of eternal futility, or we might say, vanity of vanities. But this is supposed to be holy scripture, not pagan futility. So what's going on? Well, God uses the book of Ecclesiastes to expose the empty promises of this world. Remember that the author is intentionally limiting his search for meaning to temporal things under the sun. That is, to the data of finite experience in this world. As you'll see in the weeks weeks ahead, he looks for meaning in pleasure, in work, in wine, in possessions, in sex, and even in acquiring wisdom. He tries everything that the world has to offer, and he tries it to the max, guys. Solomon has the bankroll to do it all. He has the power to do it all. And he wants to tell us in his old age, listen to me, sons and daughters. It's never enough. It's never enough. In this way, Ecclesiastes offers a kind of negative testimony against the promises of this world, a kind of experiential apologetic against a purely secular life. And every time the author comes up empty, he always remembers God, who's the only real source of meaning. And in this sense, the the structure of Ecclesiastes is kind of a spiral-shaped structure. It's not linear. He starts off with a new attempt at finding meaning under the sun, always a pursuit that's sort of like highly relatable to us. Uh, And then he observes the hebel, the vanity of his experience. And finally, he circles back to God. Now, believe it or not, the word God in Hebrew, Elohim, occurs 32 times. So in spite of the seemingly nihilistic language, Ecclesiastes is ultimately a book of faith. Four times... The author repeats this spiral pattern before finally arriving at his more robust statement of faith that we'll see in chapter 12. This is man's search for meaning on display. It begins with our failures, and yet somehow, by God's infinite grace, we end up at his doorstep. Or better still, we wake up to find that Jesus is already knocking on our door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, the Lord Jesus says in the book of Revelation. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20. Or think of the Samaritan woman at the well from our gospel reading that we were just reminded of this morning. I wonder... How long the woman had been coming to that well to temporarily quench her thirst, but never attending, never listening to that nagging voice that's trying to get her to pay attention to her deeper thirst. 
How many times did she try to find the answer in another man? A fourth husband? A fifth husband? How many times was she used and abused? How many times did she find herself to be unfaithful? Until she finally gave up on marriage altogether. Just going to cohabitate. Until that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ came to her in the heat of the day, in the midst of her own unsatisfying life under the sun. And he said, give me a drink. Beloved, when we finally arrive at the place where we're directing our ultimate thirst to God, we find that he's already beaten us to the punch. God has been thirsting for us, beloved. Perhaps this is why the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of unsatisfying thirst, is followed immediately by the Song of Songs, which celebrates the pursuit of the bridegroom. Commenting upon John 4, the Carmelite nun, St. Therese of Lisieux, writes that in Christ, the same God who declares he has no need to tell us when he is hungry, in Psalm 50, did not fear to beg for a little water from the Samaritan woman. He was thirsty, but when he said, give me a drink, it was the love of his poor creature the creator of the universe was seeking. He was thirsty for love. St. Therese continues, Ah, I feel it more than ever before. Jesus is parched. For he meets only the ungrateful and indifferent among his disciples in the world. And among his own disciples, alas, he finds few hearts who surrender to him without reservation. Who understand the real tenderness of his infinite love. Amen. Hallelujah. Of course, eventually this Samaritan woman abandons her old water jar. She leaves it there along with her old life before Jesus. She never looks back. And how about us, beloved? Where are you on your own journey, your own search for meaning? Are you still coming to the same well? Are you still believing the same lie that the solution is in the next man or the next woman, the next promotion, the next drink, the next Marvel movie, the next shopping trip, the next idol, the next golden calf? Ecclesiastes is here to say to you this morning, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or have you learned yet what it took this preacher's whole life for him to learn? Have you learned to say to Jesus, the lover of your soul, all my fountains are in you. 
you want it, if you feel that sense of thirst this morning, I want to give you two next steps. First, if there's a vanity in your life that's keeping you from Jesus, turn away from it this week. If it's sin, repent of it. Cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. Break up with the boy. Throw away the bottles. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. If it's distraction, get rid of it. Fast from it. Use the time you save to devote half an hour of prayer each day. Sitting before the lover of your soul. Just you and Jesus. No books. No podcasts. No buffer. Just you meeting with Jesus in secret. The bridegroom who longs to be with you, who's thirsty, who's knocking on the door of your heart. Second, since the message of Ecclesiastes makes more sense as a whole, I want to invite you to read it together. Anyone who wants to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes in one setting and see what God will speak to you through it, meet me here in the sanctuary on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. I'll be right here. It'll probably take us about 35 or 40 minutes to read the whole thing. And then maybe we can talk about it or share or pray together. But let's do it. Anyone want to come? All right. In closing, I want to circle back to Viktor Frankl, to man's search for meaning, and to this method he developed of logotherapy. What Frankl's experience in Auschwitz taught him is that human beings, in some sense, live off meaning. It's the fuel we burn. And that man will perish, will break down without an adequate sense of meaning. And what I want to suggest is that the book of Ecclesiastes is a kind of biblical logotherapy. The author, whether Solomon or someone else, presents us with a highly sympathetic quest for meaning, one that all of us, I think, can relate to on some level. But because this is God's holy word, he makes it clear that it's not just any meaning that will suffice. I mean, like a pet might make your life more meaningful. Having 10,000 followers on social media might make your life feel more meaningful. Getting the job of your dreams might make your life more meaningful. Indeed, it might be a genuinely good thing, but it will never be an ultimate thing. A husband or a wife or a child might be a very good thing, but it's a poor substitute for God. Do you love the idea of being married? Do you love your children more than you love Jesus? Because he says those who have their hearts set in that kind of way cannot be his disciples. In the end, it's just another water jar. Vanity of vanities, because only Christ can give us the living water. Only he has it. And when we come to him, we find ourselves loving our spouse more and putting our job in the right perspective and being the parent that our children need. So let's follow Ecclesiastes this summer on his spiral journey back to God. This is man's search for meaning. And it centers upon the one who goes searching for us. Amen.